Well, good morning. Great to see everybody here. Uh, let's open up our Bibles. You know where to open up, right? Uh, Proverbs. We're in Proverbs chapter 6. So open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. And let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we hear his word together. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you so much uh, for the songs we have sung, yet not I, but through Christ and me, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we look at all of this and we see that all of our singing and all of our lives and all of our praise should be directed to you, nothing of us and all of you. Uh, Lord, you have led us and you have guided us to this place. And we pray as we look at your word and at your scripture this morning, teach us, oh, we pray in your wonderful name, to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Um, We have talked about a lot in Proverbs because Proverbs is indeed the book of wisdom. And what wisdom does is wisdom speaks order back into the chaos that is our lives. That's what wisdom does. It speaks order back into the chaos of our lives. And if we are honest, there are many parts of our lives that feel chaotic. I know we come in here and it seems like we've got it all together, right? And you hope, just Lord, let me hold it together for a Sunday morning. But usually there's lives that just feel chaotic. Our, our, our family life, our, our marriage, our money, our work, stuff coming in in our lives, even our minds sometimes, they're, they're so chaotic that we can't, it doesn't feel like we can sleep. And so what wisdom does, thankfully, is wisdom comes in and in all those, those areas of chaos that you have in your life, wisdom comes in and it speaks order into chaos. Wisdom helps you in life. Wisdom gives practical advice and practical guidance for your life so that you know how to live your life. And we have heard in Proverbs where all of that starts, where all of that begins. You will not live your life with Christian wisdom unless all of your Christian wisdom begins with this, the fear of the Lord. None of the advice in the book of Proverbs, none of the tips, none of the strategies for life will work unless you begin with the fear of the Lord. Do I fear Him? Do I love Him? Is He my all in all? And then wisdom, after that, after you've decided that and determined that, yes, I fear Him, wisdom will speak order into your life and show you how you're to live your life. We often have moments of chaos, don't we? Can I tell you about a moment of chaos that I had a few weeks ago? A few weeks ago, what ends up happening to me is I, I write a bit on my computer. I, I type a bit on my computer and, and um, I, sometimes I stay up late at night to, to write certain things that I have to write and um, often I stay up maybe, maybe too late. So uh, I have three screens in front of me and I tend to open up a lot of windows on those three screens and I'm typing up and I'm writing a thing up and I need to go and save it. But for anybody who's used computers before and anybody who needs to save important documents, you need to know one of the important things you need to know is this. You need to back up everything. Save it on the computer. Save it on a hard drive. Save it on the cloud. Save it everywhere you can. 
Well, a few weeks ago at about two in the morning or so, not a great time to write something, um, I clicked save and I went back and started closing all the screens. And when I went back onto my document, I realized I saved over one of the documents that I'd spent all night writing. 3,000 words saved over. Panic and chaos come into my life. So I find it hard to sleep that night. I wake up and I'm like, what am I going to do? And you don't know what to do. And often this is a time, because this is not the first time this has happened to me, by the way. There's this time where Luana will come in and she will speak. Okay, here's what you have to do. You have a few options here and she will lay that out for me. And suddenly what happens to the chaos that I have? What happens? Wisdom speaks order back into the chaos. And you realize, now here's what I have to do. And that's what Proverbs does time and time again in our lives. It speaks order back into the chaos that you have of your life. And this chapter that we're going to look at uh, this morning has a lot of practical wisdom for us. And, And in that, he is going to say to us three things that we are to avoid. Three things that we are not to do. Number one, don't be a financial backer. Number two, don't be a slacker. And number three, don't be a troublemaker. Now, I went to a lot of effort to think of that. Backer, slacker, troublemaker. Why? Because this passage, this passage seems all over the place as you read it, and yet there is an order to it. He speaks practical wisdom into our lives. First, don't be someone's financial backer. Listen to what he says. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son. Save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. Practical advice number one. Don't be someone's financial backer. It says that in verse 1, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and have given your pledge for a stranger, if you've put up security for someone and given a pledge for someone, my son, run away from that. My son, don't do that. And what does he mean by putting up a security and putting up a pledge for someone else? Kind of sounds like strange language. But in the modern day, it would be something like this. Say your friend wants to get a loan from the bank. Your friend wants to get a loan for their mortgage and they go to the bank and they say, Mr. Bankman or bank woman or bank person, I want to get a loan. And so what does the bank do when they want to give you a loan? They search everything in your life. They turn your life upside down. They want to see all your spending habits, all your credit cards, all your cards, any loans you've had. They want to check out your life. They want to know when you've eaten, when you've slept. They want to know when you go to, they want to know all the habits of your life. Why are they doing that? Because they want to assess the risk of what it is 
to give you the money or the loan. In other words, they want to know, can this person, can this friend of yours pay the bank back with interest? Can they do it? And so let's imagine your friend goes to the bank and says, look, here are all my details. Here's all the stuff you have to know about me and everything. And the bank says, there's no way we can give you money. There's no way we can give you money. You are far too much of a risk. But then the banks came up with this. They said, well, if you get your friend, if you get your friend to be a security for you, or if you get a a friend to be a pledge for you, or if you get your friend to co-sign for you on this loan or guarantee this loan, then we will give you the loan if you do that. So then you go away, right? Well, I need to get the loan for, your friend goes away, I need to get the loan from the house. And then your friend, they decide to come to you. And they say to you, will you be the backer? Will you co-sign this loan for me so I can get the loan from the bank? And this passage would say, when your friend comes to you and asks you to do that, you get like a gazelle and you go. Run away from that. Don't back anyone else's debt. And the practical advice is very simple. If, if, if the bank thinks they are too risky, what are they? They're probably too risky. And so if you co-sign the loan, what's going to happen to you? If they can't pay, you'll have to pay. And it'll all be on your back. And as I look at this, don't be a financial backer. This is one of the reasons I love preaching through books of the Bible. This is one of the reasons I love preaching through passage after passage after passage. Do you know why? How different was last week than this week? Like last week was about running away from the forbidden woman and running to the perfect woman. And then someone asked me, well, what are you speaking about this week? Um, Not being a financial backer, not guaranteeing loans. It seems kind of all over the place, and yet it is wisdom for us. Don't put up security for someone. Don't pledge for someone. Don't secure someone's debt. And this is, of course, important to God. And in fact, I never knew, I've read Proverbs I don't know how many times, and this passage I don't know how many times, and yet I never saw the relevance or the point in this. And yet it is important to God. Because in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 15, it says this, Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm. But he who hates striking hands in a pledge is secure. Proverbs 17, verse 18, speaks about it again. One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. Proverbs 22, verse 26, says it again. Be not one of those who gives pledges, who put up security for debts. It may not feel important to us. It may not feel like, God, I really needed to know about pledges and security this morning. That's exactly what I needed for my heart. And yet, God in His wisdom has given us this reality. Don't put up a pledge. For what type of people? He mentions two in verse 1. For your neighbor or for a stranger. Don't do it for someone who is close to you and don't do, so, don't do it for someone you do know and don't do it for someone you don't know. In other words, what's he saying in that mirrorism? Don't do it for anybody. Those you do know and those you don't know, don't do it for anybody. And then he uses that if-then thing again. 
If you find yourself in that situation where you have given a pledge, verse 3 says, then do this, my son, save yourself. And verse 5, he repeats it again. Verse 5, save yourself. If you find yourself in that pledge, get out of it. Don't let your eyes sleep, but get out of it. Get like a gazelle and go. Run away. Don't give that pledge. It is not wise to cover someone else's debt. Because if they cannot pay, guess who has to pay? You. Not wise. I don't think he's necessarily saying it is a sin to have done that. I think he's saying it is completely not wise to do that. Yet you might say, well, that's not kind, is it? Like for a Christian, you might say, that's not a kind thing to do. If my friend needs help, I should get them out of that, that, that situation. I should help them get what they need. Surely that's what I should do. The Christian attitude should be that. I should help them out in this situation. But the Bible gives us two other options in relation to money and other people. The first option is this. We can actually, the Bible does make provision for us, to, us personally to give someone else a loan. We can loan money to other people. In, in Exodus, God made provision for that in the law. Provision for loaning to people in the law. Exodus 22 verse 25 says this. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender and charge him interest. So if you see someone, they are in need. And you say, right, I'm going to lend them money. You don't lend them money like a bank lends them money. You don't lend them money and you say, I want interest. Now, often here's what happens when we give loans to people personally. We mightn't give loans and say, give us interest back in, in money. But we do want interest back, Right? Often when people give loans to other people, they know you owe me. I not only want that money back, but I'm going to charge you some interest, right? Socially, I'm going to charge you some interest. The Bible actually allows us that opportunity to do that. I would say, though, you need to be really careful. Really, really careful with that. Because often what loans can do, you are loaning the money. Why? Because you think you might need it in the future. And if you're loaning that money, what can often happen is it can destroy the relationship. So while the, while the Bible doesn't condemn it and has provision for us, lending and borrowing things to people, I would say we still need to be very, very wise. But that's why the Bible gives a second option. And I think it is the best option and the most wise option. Don't be someone else's financial backer. It mightn't be wise to be their banker and loan them money. But you know what you could do? You could actually give it to them. Give them the money by grace and say, here you go and I don't expect anything back. Isn't that true? Giving is such a great thing that we as Christians can do and not expect anything in return. And why would we give? Because our Savior gave to us. 
That's the argument that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And one of the primary emphasis that Paul uses on giving to other people is this. The Lord Jesus has given much to you. So practical wisdom would say, don't be someone else's financial backer. You could loan them the money, that's an option. Or you could just give them the money. Or you could just not be their friend and ignore them. No, the Bible doesn't say that. But we should seek to be generous, but not in foolish ways, right? So don't be a backer. Don't be someone's financial backer. Then don't be a slacker. Here's what he says, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider his ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. What we have here, you know, it seems kind of random. Don't be a financial backer. Don't be a slacker. Don't be a troublemaker. All of that stuff seems kind of random. But what, what this stuff is, is kind of like an appendix at the end of the book. Right? So this is, this stuff is the appendix at the end of, of speech number eight. At the, and in the appendix in a book, what an author often does is they just shove a load of things that they couldn't fit into the actual book. And here we have a load of comments coming in that he couldn't fit into the actual speech. And this first one is, don't be a slacker. Or the biblical language is, don't be a sluggard. Or our language is, don't be lazy. Right? Who's tempted to laziness? All of us, right? And here is he saying, giving us practical advice, don't be lazy. Don't be this type of sluggard. And this theme, just like the pledging and the security, this theme runs throughout Proverbs. Fourteen times in the book of Proverbs, the, the, the author talks about the sluggard. The lazy person, 14 times. And I think we can hear four things about this sluggard from the book of Proverbs. Now, I was going to later on, when we get into all the themes, the second half of Proverbs, I was going to devote a whole sermon to this guy, the sluggard. And I might still do that, but but for now, I'm going to give you a preview and kind of steal my own thunder here for a second. Four things I want you to hear about the lazy person, the sluggard. Number one, he doesn't, or she does not want to work. They don't want to work. They see work and they say, I don't want to do that work. Verse 9, he says this, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? The sluggard doesn't want to work. The sluggard wants to do what? I'm going to stay in bed. I'm going to stay asleep. I'm going to stay in bed and I'm going to lie here person says, why will you lie there? The sluggard doesn't want to work. 
And Proverbs 24, 21, 25 says this about the sluggard. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to work. So number one, the sluggard, the lazy person doesn't want to work. Just leave me in bed. Just leave me in bed. Number two, the sluggard, he is slow to work. The sluggard is slow to work. Look at, look at verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. What does the sluggard want? I just want a little bit more sleep. I just want a little bit more. I just want a small bit more. The sluggard is slow to work. And Proverbs 26.14 says it like this. Really picturesque image. It says it like this. As a door turns on its hinges, it says, so does the sluggard on his bed. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard turn on its bed. So you walk up to the sluggard's bedroom. You say, get up. It's time to work. Get up. It's time to work. Oh, I just want to stay in bed for another little while longer. See, the sluggard is slow to work. Number three, the sluggard, the lazy person, what does he do? He makes excuses. Okay, so if you don't want to work and if you're slow to work, what are you going to do? You're going to make excuses. And Proverbs talks about one of the excuses he makes, and it's brilliant. I cannot wait to get to the second half of this book. I am waiting for it, but we'll get there. Chapter 22, verse 13 says this. The sluggard says, here's the excuse. The sluggard says, when you go up to his bedroom, you say, it's time to get to work. You have to get to work. Get up and get to work. Here's what the sluggard says. There's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. If I get out of my bed, if I get out of here, the lion's going to kill me. I can't get out there. There's lions out there. Sluggard makes excuses. The fourth thing that the sluggard does is the sluggard will not finish the job. So if if you finally, you know, get the sluggard and say, okay, I have to work, and he finally stops turning in his bed, and you finally convince him, look, there's no lions outside, just get out there. Then what he does is when he starts the job, he doesn't finish the job. And again, I love the second half of this book. Listen to this verse. Proverbs 19, verse 24 says this. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. You know, they would eat with their hands. Buries his hand in the dish and will not bring it back to his mouth. So here's what the sluggard does. Comes in, he says after work, I am starving. Oh, I'm starving. He gets the fork. Looks at the plate, it's full of food. I'm starving, I can't wait, I need to eat this food. Puts the fork in, he says, I'm so hungry. He says, I just couldn't be bothered lifting it to my mouth. I just couldn't be bothered finishing the work. That's the sluggard. That's the lazy person. He does not want to work, he is slow to work, he makes excuses to work, and he doesn't want to finish his work. That's the lazy person. Any of us prone to that at times? I don't want to start my work today. I don't want to finish my work today. We make excuses. We waste time. This world is so distracting, isn't it? When we try and do the work that the Lord has laid out for us. Yes, we need to rest. The Lord rested. 
Sabbath rest, a Sabbath principle. We need to take rest. But you need to know something about that Sabbath principle is this. The Sabbath principle was given in this way. You need to take rest because it assumes what? Six days of work. One day of rest. Work's actually good. (laughs) It was there before the fall. It's a good thing. Whatever you do, do it as glory unto the Lord. We can work for the Lord and we can rest for the Lord. But often when we are overly lazy, we do that for ourselves. Now, I love a good lazy day. Don't get me wrong. It's nice to, you know, lie down and rest, and we should. But when we are getting paid to work, we should work. We should work the hours that we've given, and we should do it onto the glory of the Lord so that the people around us will see that person works in a different way. They're not working for money. They're working for something else. Yes, we say, the glory of the Lord. And so he points out to this slugger, this lazy person, one of the smallest creatures on the face of the planet. Look at the ant. How humbling would that be for the lazy guy? You want me to look at an ant and follow after his example? Yes, you look at the ant, the one that you can crush with your little baby finger, and I want you to follow the ant's example. Have you ever seen ants at work? They are really good workers. If you look at any little documentary, you'll see they're really good workers. In fact, some of the ants are called worker ants or carpenter ants because they work and they do a really good job at it. They work hard to build their nests. They work hard to gather their food. You know, ants can 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 lift up to 50 times their own body weight. They're really strong. Over 50 times their own body weight. So that means when an ant comes up to something heavy, the ant doesn't say, I'm not going to be able to lift that. There's no way I'm going to be able to lift that. The ant goes and the ant tries to lift that. But say the ant finds a dead spider. What's the ant going to do with a dead spider? The ant is going to come up to a dead spider and he's going to say, I think I can lift that. But maybe not on my own. I'm going to gather a load of my friends and they all come up and they gather and they can lift this dead spider, which is way bigger than them, and bring it over to the nest. They are hard workers. Lazy person. Look to the ant and follow his example. And we work to the glory of God. All of us can be prone at times to this. But we are warned against it. So don't be a backer, don't be a slacker, and don't be a troublemaker. Look at the last few verses. Verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, and points with his finger. With perverted heart, devises evil continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breeds out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. 
don't be a troublemaker. You say, where on earth did you get troublemaker from? It talks about this wicked person, right? And condemns his wicked speech. Look at all the body parts. He always talks about body parts in, in, in Proverbs. Crooked speech, winking eyes, signaling feet, whatever that means. I don't know how he signals with his feet. Pointing fingers, a perverted heart. So I could talk about all that. His crooked speech, his eyes, his fingers, his feet. But the whole idea, the whole picture is his whole body is corrupt. It's all corrupt. Even down to his heart, it's corrupt. When he winks, it's corrupt. When he points, it's corrupt. When he uses his feet, it's corrupt. And yet, what does he do continually? How would you define him continually? What does he always do? What does he always go about doing? Verse 14, continually sowing discord, which is another way of saying he is always causing trouble. He is a troublemaker. And then you look at, you look at verse 16 and it says this, six things that the Lord hates. The Lord hates six things. No, 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 wait. There, there's seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. That's a poetic way of saying this. There's there's six things that I really hate. Well, actually, actually, there's seven. How could I have forgotten about the seventh thing? And so it is in the scripture here. You have six things that the Lord hates. And of course, he, he, he hates all these things. He hates haughty eyes. He hates the pride of eyes. He hates a lying tongue. Again, body language here. He hates, he hates hands that shed innocent blood and a heart that devises wicked plans and, and feet that run into evil and, and a false witness. But what is the seventh thing? The seventh thing is this. One who sows discord among brothers. And what is another way of sowing discord? What is another way of saying that? He makes trouble. He is a troublemaker. Don't be like that. And of course, I could talk about all of this all day. You know, crooked speech, lying tongue, evil heart. We could go into all of that in detail. But if I was to sum up what this is talking about in relation to the wicked person and what the Lord really hates among us, what the Lord despises among us is that of troublemaking. We as a church need to avoid that and as individuals need to avoid troublemaking. Paul writes loads of letters in the New Testament. Paul writes loads of letters in the New Testament. And in almost every single one of the letters, what is he addressing? He is addressing troublemakers, isn't he? I mean, think about it. He's addressing fights and troubles. In Philippians, you have Judea and Syntyche, this this fight that has happened in the church. In Galatians, he has these false teachers. In Colossians, he has these false teachers. He's always dealing in his letters with troublemakers. And, And in James, guess what? Troublemakers. When James writes, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes quarrels, not quarrels, quarrels and fights among you? What causes that among you? Why does he say that? Because they're fighting. Oh, every church in the New Testament is doing what? Fighting. Someone's always causing trouble in the church. Always. What's the warning for us? Here's my inkling. I have a guess about our church. We're probably not going to be any different than any church in the history of mankind. 
I'm guessing the Passage Baptist Church probably is not going to be perfect. Do you think I'm right? We're probably not going to be perfect. We're probably going to have times where there's going to be trouble amongst us or troublemaking amongst us. We need to watch out. Why? Because the Lord hates it. We need to choose to be peacemakers instead of troublemakers. That's what we need to choose. And so in this church, I am convinced that you will find, if you haven't found it yet already, you will find things that you do not like. You will find the way we do things maybe that you don't like, our organization, our structures, the different events that we run, or the way we do things in in church, how we put the chairs, maybe the color of the chairs, all this kind of stuff. You will find things in the church that you do not like. And the moment you find things in the church that you do not like, you have a choice with that. Am I going to go the way of trouble or am I going to go the way of peace? And I think, I think we should choose the way of peace. And sometimes, do you know what that means? We will concede our own opinions. This is why I love leading with someone else. I love leading with Brendan. Why? Because I don't just get to lead on my own and think. There is times Brendan has to concede to me and I have to concede to him. There are times he might suggest things that I wouldn't be all for and times I might suggest things that he won't be all for. Now we can go the path of trouble or we can go the path of peace. And I would say to you, let's go the path of peace. Man, life is too short to be giving out about everything, isn't it? Isn't it? I remember going into school, I had this teacher and like literally the moment she walked into the classroom, she'd just give out. It's like, how can you live your life like that? And sometimes people approach the church like that. Everything's a problem. There's something wrong with everything. Man, we just need to chill out and walk the way of peace. And can I say something? You know, in COVID times, the church has been destroyed. A lot of churches, a lot of friends of mine in the States, because people have had different opinions. When people have had different opinions, people haven't chosen the path of peace. They've chosen the path of trouble. And can I say something about this church? I am just so grateful for you. Because I haven't heard it anyway, and I don't think Brendan has. We've just gone with the flow of things. We've had to make quick decisions. We've had to cancel things. And by and large, all of us have have walked the path of peace. And I would say continue to do that. Continue to do that. Don't be the one who sows discord. Don't be the backer. Don't be the slacker. And don't be the troublemaker. That's us. That's what we are doing in this passage. But a good thing to ask about every Bible passage, and the final thing we should ask about every Bible passage, is not just what we are doing, but what is the Lord doing? What is the Lord doing in this passage? And if you would ask it of the passage last week, what is the Lord doing? Look at what it says in chapter 5, verse 21. For the man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. 
What does that tell us about the Lord? What is the Lord doing? The Lord is all seeing. The Lord sees all our sin. The Lord sees every act, every lack of discipline. The Lord sees every moment of lust. The Lord sees every little lie. The Lord sees the intentions of your heart. The Lord sees the words you are shouting this morning. The Lord sees the thoughts you are thinking this morning. The Lord sees all your sin. And we look at the passage this morning and what do we conclude? The Lord not only sees all your sin, the Lord hates all your sin. He hates all of it. He hates your lying tongue. He hates your evil thoughts. He hates your deceitful heart. He hates every sin. And that humbles us, doesn't it? To think about that, that has been wrecking my head this week. He sees all my sin. All of it. And He hates all my sin. All of it. And what got me up this morning is this. He forgives all my sin. All of it. We are in debt. We do stand before Jesus and we say, look at the debt of my sin. I cannot pay this off. Jesus doesn't come along and co-sign it. He doesn't co-sign it. Do you know what he does with the debt of our sin? He obliterates it. He says, I've got one word for your sin. Tetelestai, which means it is finished. Your sin paid in full. I see it all. You can't hide from me, Shane. I see it all. I hate it all. But I have nailed it all to the cross. I have showed you I have hated it all. Because I was crushed for your iniquities. And I was bruised for your sin. And by my wounds, you will be healed. The Lord hates our laziness. And He sees it all. The Lord hates our troublemaking. And He sees it all. But if we would come to Him this morning, He can and He will forgive it all. And I would encourage each and every one of us to run back to the cross this morning. Isn't that what we have to do as Christians? Constantly run back to the cross. Constantly go back for forgiveness. And what does He say every time? Forgiven. 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 Paid in Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have paid our debt in full. You see all our sin. You hate all our sin. And yet you forgive all our sin. And I pray that we would hear the wisdom this morning that we have heard. Lord, help us work to the glory of your name. 
and help us rest to the glory of your name. Help us avoid troublesome talk, troublesome actions, and go the way of peace. And Lord, when we fail, and we will, pray that we'd run to the cross where we can hear again, it is finished. In your name, amen.